So hello and welcome to the Kaju Journal. I'm Joseph. I'm Samuel. And today we're really happy to have Didier Ortiz uh, joining us. Uh, Didier, can you please introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Didier Ortiz with the Troika Collective down here in South Florida, Broward County to be exact. I'm here to speak on the situation in Peru as an affiliate member of the National Political Party Peru Libre, as a son not only of leftist Peruvians, but of communist uh, Peruvians, I feel it is my duty to struggle for the nation that saw my birth until I die. So I'm here to speak some truth because the hegemonic imperialist trash media won't. Exactly. And, thank, and that's why we're super excited to have you and to try and promote a counter hegemonic narrative. So we want to start by contextualizing the situation in Peru. I think a lot of leftists outside of Peru have been following, but have only really been following since. Castillo was elected. They're right. not really aware of the sort of dynamics underneath of Peruvian history. So we wanted to start by focusing on just the broader themes at work of neoliberalism, of colonialism, yeah. and starting with the central figure of Velasco in Peruvian history. Right. Can you discuss a little bit about the role of this figure and the oligarchy in Peruvian history? So here I'm holding a book by Hector Bejar, who was the first chancellor of Pedro Castillo right at the beginning of his government. And Bejar wrote a book about Velasco. Velasco plays a huge role in the life of Bejar and in the life of Pedro Castillo. How is that? General Velasco did a coup basically in 1968 to overthrow a moribund state system that had promised for about 50 years to take on an agrarian reform. An agrarian reform to take away 90% of the land of Peru from 10 families whose only merit was to be the, the spawn of pirates and rapists and all forms of scoundrels that came to Peru at the behest of what they called then the Catholic monarchs. And so Velasco took the land, made many declarations. In fact, I remember one, I don't remember because I wasn't alive, but I remember watching one on a video where he said at this moment, our glorious troops are entering the mine of so-and-so and in the most patriotic act are lowering the British flag and erasing the flag of Peru. So Velasco was a very revolutionary leader in the sense that he was freeing the land in the sense that he was giving it to the Peruvian nation. Now, this is where Hector Bejar comes in. Hector Bejar was leading an armed struggle at that time or a few years before Velasco took over in the early 60s. Velasco had been in Cuba for some years. He had participated in the development of the Cuban revolution in his nascent years. And he came back to Peru to lead the MIR, El Movimiento Izquierdista Revolucionario, the revolutionary leftist movement, and to overthrow the Peruvian state. Now, at that time, he met a young man called Abimael Guzman Reynoso, codenamed Chairman Gonzalo. Now, Chairman Gonzalo is the name known internationally uh, throughout the world for this individual, but in Peru, uh, only his followers call him Chairman Gonzalo. Most people just say his legal uh, Christian name, which is Abimael Guzman Reynoso. And so I'll use the international name for clarity, the clarity of your viewers. Gonzalo told uh, Hector Bejar that he should not launch an armed struggle because the time was not ripe yet. Now, uh, there's many interpretations that could be made and there's in endless what ifs in history. But one fact I think should be underscored. In the time of Velasco, 
the overwhelming majority of the Peruvian people had no land, no education, no rights whatsoever. And perhaps uh, Gonzalo, if he had launched the People's War at that moment, he would have had an overwhelming majority of peasants in his side, the overwhelming majority of the Peruvian people, over 90% of the Peruvian people, landless, rightless, completely destitute, completely forgotten, explicitly so. And so they did not do an armed struggle. Velasco did the agrarian reform. <clears throat> and from that agrarian reform, we get the situation of the 80s, right? There were now rich peasants. How come? I'll give you an example. When uh, um, Velasco developed, for example, the cooperatives, right? The cooperatives were meant to be uh, organizations that gathered the peasantry and allowed them to vote collectively on the land. It seems very democratic, very revolutionary, and so on. And in many ways it was. It's better than an oligarch uh, upholding the latifundio system. But one unfortunate thing that happened was that the first members of the cooperatives would close down membership immediately. Nobody else could become a member of the cooperative. You could only work as a rural worker. That's it. That's why one of the Peru Libre's uh, principles is to represent the worker, both rural and city, city-based, right? Because these are not just peasants anymore. These are literal proletarians. They get paid money for a, a service that they provide. They get paid to put in more correct Marxist terms, my apologies. They sell their labor power for a wage. They're proletarians. They just happen to live in the countryside and they happen to have the same uh, identity, right? As their exploiters, people that are, you know, indigenous, Chanka people, Wanka people, the people of the South in general, but who have more or less money. This is also one of the follies of Sendero Luminoso, that they didn't know how to handle the contradictions among the people, that they did not ha know how to handle the rich peasantry that now would be against them. And so it is in that context that President Pedro Castillo is raised, right? Yes, he's poor, but he's not the most destitute, right? And he's born into a more capitalist-leaning society. It's still a semi, it's still a, a society that carries semi-feudal vestiges, but now it is a factually a capitalist society. And that's where Dina Boluarte, a capitalist, comes from. Dina Boluarte is a descendant of the Chanca people, one of the most revolutionary people of Peru that fought against the Spanish, that fought against um, various oppressors and dictators that ultimately were the main force of Sendero Luminoso. It's true, the Chanca people, most of those people obviously as you know, Maoists, they wouldn't attribute their revolutionaryness towards uh, their ancient ancestors, but certainly many people recognize that fact. And in fact, most people that have died in the protest are also Chancas. That's also, that should be noted. But Nina Boluarte is also a Chanca, right? So bourgeois nationalism, ultimately was folly, or, or I'm sorry, bourgeois ethno-nationalism was folly in this case. Why do I mention Velasco again? Was because without Velasco, there is no Pedro Castillo, but without Velasco, there's also a very little prospects for Alberto Fujimori. Alberto Fujimori was a black horse or a dark horse candidate in the 1990 elections who ran against neoliberalism. You should remember that 
neoliberalism has never gotten into power, if you will, through the ballot box, right? But through coups and lies and torture and massacres and blackmail in general, right? And so Alberto Fujimori ran against neoliberalism, but in 1992 committed uh, what he called a self-coup. Basically, the army closed down Congress and demolished or overthrew the 1979 constitution. That 79 constitution came after the Bermudez government and was a product of the people's struggles. A huge chunk of the people that wrote that constitution were communists. And I mean, communists for real, for real, not the stuff you see on the internet, right? But like Marxist Leninists of different stripes, they even had Hoches, right? Uh, different kinds of, of communists writing this constitution. And it was signed by Victor Raul Aya de la Torre, who was basically considered, uh, who was the leader of the APRA party, who was in that time, theoretically, the social democratic party of that time. It's like if Bernie Sanders signed the new constitution, but there's also like Shama Sawant and perhaps uh, Michael Parenti writing the constitution, right? Or some of our other comrades. I don't want to sound too factional, right? I don't want to name party leaders here. But, you know, some of the better comrades in our movement writing the constitution. And so... This constitution that replaces the 1979 constitution is basically a copy and paste from the State Department and the CIA, right? So basically they emailed them their constitution. They changed a couple of misspelling errors because perhaps the CIA's uh, operatives didn't know full Spanish as they should have. And hence they got, uh, a, a, how can I put it? A piece of shit. And so this piece of shit, was more of a series of laws than a constitution. Because more so than delineating perhaps the social contract or the main functions of the institutions and in government, it limited what the Peruvian people could do. It limited what the Peruvian people could say, right? And it gave tremendous powers to the president of Peru. So one of the, the main positions or provisions of the Peruvian uh, constitution of 1993 imposed by a genocidal coup is that Peru has contract laws with foreign companies with international corporations. That means that a contract that the Peruvian state enters into with an international corporation has the same authority as the Peruvian constitution and can never be touched by the legislature or by the president. So the contract is like the Magna Carta of Peru, right? So how can you even contest this uh, oligarchic measure? The only way that you can do it is that every so often a contract has to be renewed. And this is con the context for what happened on December the 7th, 2022. Pedro Castillo was about to be not impeached because there's not enough votes to impeach him. He was about to be uh, basically Perhaps this is not the best translation, but he was basically about to be disabled as president. His authority as president was to be annulled or suspended for one year. It was basically a motion that they could take on that they had enough votes for that would have taken Pedro Castillo's presidential powers away for one year. He would still be president. He would just be uh, president without powers for one year. Enough time to renew all the contract laws and secure a neoliberal domination, neocolonial exploitation, and social 
disintegration for the next 10, 20, 30 years. You know, those contracts run for decades. But Castillo, and this is the part that is left up for a lot of interpretation. Pedro Castillo says that he doesn't remember it, giving the message that he gave in front of millions of people and that's all over the internet. There is a bunch of rumors, contradictory most of the time, about what happened. Was Pedro Castillo drugged? Was Pedro Castillo's family being held hostage? What occurred on that day? There's a lot of mysteries that include the CIA. We know that the ambassador to Peru is a former CIA operative. As you guys know, a lot of the times, not all countries, but for a lot of countries, uh, the ambassadorship is merely a reward to big donors by whoever happens to be in the White House. But when they're putting a CIA spook, it's basically because they want a, very, a professional in charge of the covert operations taking place. Uh, this uh, CIA operative met with the Peruvian Minister of Justice a couple of days before the coup. Uh, there was a general that had sworn loyalty to Pedro Castillo and that he would back him up in this motion to close Congress, which at that time had, uh, I believe, 41% of Peruvians supported closing Congress unconstitutionally. Like, whatever happens, happens. Close the shit down. They didn't give a fuck about the law. And then we have an 82% of the population double that wants it done, but through, you know, a legal recourse, right? And so Pedro Castillo, he had substantial support to do what he did, but he needed military backing. And so a few minutes before he started speaking on national television, the general who has sworn his loyalty to him retired. And within 45 minutes, his own staff arrested him. And that was it. At that point, the Peruvian, uh, the Mexican embassy in Lima was uh, prepared to receive Castillo, but the fascist forces surrounded the Mexican embassy in Lima, uh, which is very uh, upsetting because normally the Peruvian state is supposed to, like any state, supposed to guarantee the integrity of a diplomatic mission, right? It's not like, again, People can attack the, you know, Brazilian consulate. That would be stupid and illegal. So Peru was found itself in a moment of paralysis for many strata. Pedro Castillo is by far the most popular president in Peruvian political history by far, which is good for him, right? But he only has 20% he had, at that point, only 20% support of the population. That tells you just how little confidence the Peruvian population had in any political leader that Pedro Castillo at 20% had basically a hegemony on politicians that people liked because there was no other contender that could say, oh no, more people like me, that, that didn't exist. That 20% came out to the streets, hardcore 20%. The first night they started blocking highways, even small contingents in Lima started protesting, but it wasn't enough, right? It took a matter of days to grow that movement to more and more and more people, not only because people were being killed, but ultimately because nobody supported Dina Boluarte. 
80% of the population was against her taking power, including 51% of what they call the AB demographics, which means the richest Peruvians. The richest Peruvians in Peru didn't want her, let alone the poorest Peruvians. And so you have a substantial rejection of the mafia called Fujimorismo. That's actually one of the, the details that should be taken into account. Why is it that a significant portion of the richest Peruvians don't mess with Fujimorismo? Because Fujimorismo, more, it's not an ideology, right? Fujimori didn't write like a book or put forward any concrete ideas. He was a populist. But what Fujimorismo really stands for is organized crime in office. So I don't know if you guys ever seen that series, Narcos, uh, where pa Pablo Escobar wanted to become president of Colombia, right? Okay, imagine that happened, but like in Peru, like it actually happened. So with the entry of, of Fujimorismo into office, you have the entry of a network of corrupt uh, officials, narco traffickers, people who just muggle stuff and don't pay their taxes, people who just, um, how can I put it? It goes from like the biggest forms of corruption, like narco trafficking and buying out the press, whatever, all the way to dumb shit. I'll give you an example. Let's say that the central government sends uh, a ton of powdered milk to, let's say, this village, right, in Peru. Okay, half of that powdered milk will end up being sold in stores owned by Fujimoristas. And the other half will actually be will make it to the schools and hospitals that it was supposed to um, resource, right? That it was supposed to support. And so it goes all the way yeah, from like, again, buying out the press, murdering people, you know, cocaine export. You know, Peru is the second biggest exporter of cocaine in the world, right? It's not Venezuela. And so, but you don't see it on the news, right? You never, you, I mean, sometimes, you know, you'll have a, a, a rapper will be like, oh yeah, you know, Drug houses looking like Peru, Peruvian, yeah, you hear that here and there, but it's never really like that promoted. And yet, still, Peru has uh, the second highest uh, rate of export of cocaine. And so, in that context, when Pedro Castillo was running for office, the person that came in second that went against him in the second round of elections, she was the daughter of Fujimori. Keiko Fujimori. And Keiko Fujimori was also involved in corruption. Now, check this out. Before she was running for office, she was being, uh, she was going through a trial process, right? Where she was facing 30 years in prison. And the Fujimorista party, Fuerza Popular, would have been con uh, classified as a criminal organization, which it is, right? You think of like, if the God's disciple of, of Chicago, or the Sinaloa cartel, if they became a political party, that's basically what uh, Fuerza Popular, the Fujimorista party is. But now, Keiko Fujimori walks free and the guy who won the elections is in jail, right? That tells you the profound levels of corruption in the judicial system in Peru. Keiko Fujimori had ran already three times, by the way, and she had lost all those times before. But this time she, she received the full support of uh, all the mafias, of all the narco traffickers in Peru, of all the, the scum of the earth, right? For example, they would kill supporters of Pedro Castillo. There was a terrible case in which a week before the election, 18 people were gunned down by a 
by a higher gun, you know? And that's not rare in those parts of Peru. So Pedro Castillo, he came into office on a platform, of course, of a new constitution of renegotiating uh, the contract laws and of fulfilling the promise that there would never again be a poor person in a rich country. And those promises, you know, are held high and held dear by at least the majority of the population of Peru, but are bitterly opposed by the most powerful people in Peru. That's why right now, even though even in the imperial core, right, even though the United States a murderous government with the most blood in its hands than any empire the world has ever known, even they're like, Whoa, what the fuck are you guys doing? Because there is no support for the current government it's condemned throughout. Nobody speaks in favor of them. Not even the right-wing presidents of Latin America are speaking out in favor of the Peruvian regime. And yet still, the Peruvian oligarchy refuses to step down. They are like staunchly against it. Now, they will fall down. Because remember that we've had six presidents in the past six years, right? So it would be very weird if she takes it through the year. But what comes next? Will it be better? Will it be worse? We'll see. The National Political Party, Peru Libre, hopes that it is not really a new president, right? But believes that a constitutional assembly, which is at the man of the people, most people in Peru, will bring a new social contract to Peru, will bring a new uh, situation to the Peruvian people, and will hopefully be a triumph of the progressive and revolutionary forces of the population. But hopefully it doesn't go the way of Chile because that's looking a little bleak at the moment. Yeah, no. So it, it seems like the, um, the machinations of the um, coup against Castillo were largely motivated by, you know, this um, desire from the comprador class um, and multinationals to renew their contracts. So could we maybe like name some names a little, like which which multinationals are the ones like involved in the exploitation of Peru? Like, uh, is it um, like American and Canadian mining companies? Like what what contracts are were at stake here? And have we seen like the Boulevard government? Uh, but no, it's, it's a really good question. And I think that uh, it merits organizing. Yes. Definitely. Because I think that while, I remember the last time I looked this up particularly, because I did have some ideas about it. There was one base out of Texas. Um, but not in Florida, definitely. But it's uh, it's funny because the people that, you know, the um, PMC that led the assassination of President um, Moise in IED, they're based in Doral, <laughs> they're based in Miami. But yeah, but the Peruvian miners are not here, but yes. No, I think it's a, it's a really good question to ask. You know, one player in Peru is Repsol, uh, actually. And I think it, it's one of the more infamous ones. They, they do oil, oil uh, extraction, you know? And so the, the controversy with Repsol was that right after the, well, I'll give you a whole lot of comments, right? So the first cabinet, cabinet of Pedro of Castillo was left-leaning, right? It had Hector Bejar, it had people like Guido Bellido. Uh, Guido Bellido, you know, is a social leader from Cusco. Uh, it had various people that, the right wing has accused of terrorism. And you notice that the most committed uh, political leaders are accused of terrorism. So if they're accused of terrorism, to me, it's a, it's a good sign. 
<laughs> but unfortunately, the caviares had pressured alongside the Fujimoristas that pressured Castillo to change his cabinet so much that he ended up basically up to taking up a caviar uh, cabinet. Cabinet. So, for example, the prime minister, Mar Marta Vasquez, she came into office and almost immediately took it upon herself to defend Repsol, this Spanish company from Spain uh, that was uh, in the petroleum industry, right, that was extracting oil from Peru. There was a leak, right, and all this oil took over uh, the beaches of northern Lima. And so while the left is protesting, saying you have to clean up, you have to throw bans, right? Because it's like billions of dollars here that it's going to take to clean this whole thing up. Repsol was giving out food baskets. That was a great contribution. Mm -hmm. And Marta Vasquez, the caviar leftist, she was on social media giving out food baskets with Repsol logos on them. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it's the dumbest thing, but it was to be expected because the caviar left is uh, basically NGO based, right? The people that they get their money from are of course the US aid and the National Endowment for Democracy and so on and so on. So the caviar is, you know, they promote things which look, I'm not against, right? They promote the, a woman's right to choose. They promote a marriage equality. They promote, you know, the legalization of cannabis, you know, okay. And there's many progressive people in, in Peru that support these things, but they don't ever support economic change at a substantial level. It happens to be the thing that most Peruvians can unite around because Peru, unfortunately, you know, to be honest, is a socially conservative country. Now we can't take a right opportunist error and say, oh, well, then, that, then we won't talk about social issues. Of course, we're not going to say that because that's, opportunism and betrayal of the revolution. But what we should say is that we must unite the people. And in that unity, through struggle, we'll be able to achieve a higher unity, right? Only through struggling next to somebody who's different from you for the same thing can you see the humanity in them. It's not from abstractions. It's not from guilt. It's not from saying, you see, your ancestors did this. It's like, okay, but what the fuck are you doing right now? And that's more important, you know? So in the end, uh, the caviares got their way. They helped sabotage the government of Pedro Castillo when he was coup. Peru Libre was saying, look, we're against the coup. But, and this is a criticism of some Peru Libre congressmen, right? This is a frank criticism that needs to be carried out, which is that even though the leadership of the party say, hey, don't vote for this coup, and while most people did not vote for the coup, some of them did. And some of them did, and they might say, well, listen, this guy, he betrayed his promises. He broke from the party. You know, he's tripping. And, you know, the saddest thing is that Castillo, after he lost the caviares, after he lost the revolutionary left, he was left as a support group which with what was called the Chota Circle. Chota is his hometown. Right. And these people, you know, they've known him since he was young and whatever, they're well meaning, but they were not ideologically sound. They were not even politically savvy. The first week, his, um, I believe it was his brother in law got caught with $20,000 taped 
to like the tank of the toilet of his office. It was like, it's a shit show, right? It's like you went from serious political union leaders to then like caviar, degenerate, whatever, Ivy League school trained people to now just like petty criminals. And so Pedro Castillo found himself alone. And because of that, some members, you know, again, of the Peru Libre, of the Peru Libre bloc in Congress voted for his ouster. And that's uh, terrible because even though he committed many errors, is the people voted for him, right? And ultimately the alternative to Pedro Castillo is not, you know, somebody who's more left, right? It's fascism. And that was easily understood. That's why Peru Libre was uh, collecting signatures for a national assembly, a constituent assembly to write a new constitution. The reason why we're not doing that anymore is because Congress passed a law saying that you cannot collect signatures for a referendum. <laughs> and they kept passing laws at every turn to block every single thing. For example, right now it is illegal, right? To do anything for a, a reform, uh, not a reform, but a, a constituent assembly. Like you could go to jail. Like it, it, it got crazy, right? Pedro Castillo and his power has been abrogated tremendously, especially considering the fact that the 1993 constitution gives the president um, almost full control of government. And the reason why that constitution exists is to um, legitimize the Alberto Fujimori dictatorship. So for example, uh, in the bourgeois democracies, let's say in, uh, you know, in Spain, in Britain, in France, in Germany, in the despicable terrorist Zionist state of Israel, if the legislative branch passes a law, or rather, or, or passes a vote of no confidence, the executive resigns and there's snap elections. So that happens whether it's the Conservative Party, the Likud's Party, the Christian Democratic Union. But in Peru, if Congress passes two votes of no confidence, then the president gets to close down Congress and rule for four months by decree, right? So in the in the bourgeois world, the president steps down. In Fujimorista world, the president closes Congress. <laughs> and so with that power, when Pedro Castillo came in, you know, Congress was like a little shook. And the caviares made Pedro Castillo, and of course, they didn't make him in the sense that they put a gun to his head, so he's responsible for his own actions, right? But they pushed him to make a commitment to not close down Congress, which then takes away the main weapon that you have against this fascist Congress, right? Well, it's almost like a Bernie-esque, you know, uh, failure. You know, it's almost intentional, right? Almost premeditated. And so I keep underscoring the role of the caviares is because at least half of the people speaking in English on international media about this are caviares, mm. just straight up. I remember when I was in the inauguration for Pedro Castillo, there was two inaugurations. There was one in Lima, in Congress and so on. And the next day there was one in Ayacucho, in La Papa de, Pampa de Quinoa. That was where Bolivar had fought against the Spaniards. That's where Chavez, Hugo Chavez, had met Velasco, right, in this very historic land. And I remember being there, and uh, there was a couple of other, you know, uh, foreign heads of state, 
but Evo was also there. But Evo, you know, is not president of Bolivia anymore. But I remember when they mentioned him, Evo Morales, yo, only Castillo got slightly more applause and cheers than Evo Morales. Like nobody gave a fuck about the president. What was the name of that president of Colombia at that time? Um, Duque. Duque, yeah. Nobody gave a goddamn about Duque. Nobody gave a goddamn no, about like... uh, what's, it? what's the name of this other president, the Ecuadorian president. But then Evo Morales, oh my God, Evo Pueblo, Evo Pueblo, everybody went crazy. But I remember that at the end of that event, I was tired, right? I was like, man, let me sit down. And I remember I sat down and this police car with this big uh, megaphone said, oh, there's this small child. He's wearing cargo shorts. He's, a, he's wearing a blue shirt. He's about six years old. And uh, he's lost here. If you lost him, please come to the car. He's right here. Half an hour happens, same message. Yo, an hour and a half happened. I was just sitting there chilling, same message. I was like, damn, bro, I feel so bad. And some people were talking like, damn, bro, this kid just lost his mom. Then this guy comes up to the police car and gives the same message in Quechua. Five minutes later, the mom showed up. Yeah. And, I rem and that, that made me recollect. And later on, even more so, just how culturally different the revolutionary peasants masses are from this strata of uh, Limeños, this upper middle class strata of Limeños, right? I even remember going on some Zoom calls where people just started talking Quechua. There's like no translation. I'm just like, I speak Spanish and English. So I'm like, uh, right? But in the when the party confronted the situation that it was heading towards office, then a lot of these, um, I would say negative dynamics came into play, right? You have people tell me, for example, oh, you know, you speak Spanish and English. That's like really good. It, may, it means that you're prepared, you know, for political work. But what about the peasants that have been dying <laughs> for this shit, right? They don't speak Spanish, but you know what they speak? They speak the people's tongue, right? Quechua is not called Quechua by Quechua speakers. It's called the people's tongue. And so it's, uh, it's a situation that we can learn from as well. I was reading uh, some of the memoirs by William C. Foster. One of the things that he mentions is the struggle in the party, uh, which at that time was a socialist party, against the petty bourgeois leadership, right? You had the Chicago-based workers, and then you had the petty bourgeois leadership, New Yorkers, of course. And uh, no offense to New York, <laughs> New York is cool. <laughs> and so, um, and, uh, but I underscore that because Peru Libre was facing that, right? Peru Libre had a huge purge. Peru Libre purged the vice president and the president of Peru in his purge. That's how serious it was about achieving ideological purity. I remember uh, I was at another Zoom call because remember I live in, in Miami, so I can't go to half of this in person, right? I have to fly to Peru to go to it in person. And that's also why I can't be more involved in an affiliate because to be more involved means I would have to be there and militate every day and, and go to meetings. You know, like a, like a communist party, right? And so I remember there was this Zoom meeting and we had this comrade, an ideological leader uh, from Apurimac. He was like broadcasting from the top of a mountain. It was wild. And he gave like some of the harshest words I've heard. But he said, if you do this, you're an opportunist. If you don't uphold ideology, you're an opportunist. If you don't follow the party's line, you're an opportunist. He just gave a whole line. He's, and then he he raised up the, the ante because he said, look, 
if you don't know about Mariategui's struggle with the South American Bureau of the Common Turn, you're not a Mariategui. You just you you snuck in here. <laughs> I'm like, damn, I'm like, yo, let me start reading about this shit. And I did, you know, I had to get educated about that shit. Uh, it's very good stuff too that that we can take uh, to 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 learn from, right? But anyway, I, I was underscoring that because nine times out of ten, right, people from outside of Peru will look at the situation, and yes, they'll look at this, the hand of the CIA, which is real, the hand of international imperialism, which is super real. But as Comrade Chairman Mao Zedong put it, the the trajectory of the development of a thing is determined by the internal contradictions of that thing. If the Cuban revolution falls, at the end of the day, it's because of the, it would be the fault of the Cuban revolution, right? The, the October revolution fell because of the faulty revisionist leadership of the Soviet Union, right? And so in my view, the Pedro Castillo government failed because of the internal contradictions therein, you know? You had uh, caviares, right? Social democratic, treacherous people. Then you had opportunists, people that were like, oh yeah, yeah, Peru Libre, that sounds cool, bro. Listen, I speak three languages and I grew up in Paris, so I know like the world, whatever. Right, no, yo, I, I spoke with people like this, bro. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, you know, I have a lot of money, you know, that the party could use. I'm like, okay, yeah. And uh, it's, not that, it's not that I'm against money. I know that there's some, political parties, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to start beef, but I'll tell you, there's some communist parties here in the United States of America, big parties, huge parties that get money from rich people across the world. That's a fact. I'm not going to say the name of the party because again, I'm not a factionalist. Google this shit, okay? <laughs> um, but it's certainly it's certainly something that we can learn from the Peruvian context. Definitely. Well, I... So just to change the subject, I guess, but just to continue on this note, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the side that, you know, we're not hearing through the media, because I think like the Western media, even like leftists are not really talking about the crackdowns by the fascist state against the people. So the fact that there have been two major massacres against people protesting the coup. And can you talk a little bit about like, on the ground, you know, the struggle on the front lines right now, especially for uh, indigenous people who are, you know, who are protesting, who are trying to fight what happened. But the fact that this government is a continuation of a, a genocidal project that has been going on since Plan Verde and is, con and I mean, has been going on since 1492, but is continuing right. genocidal crackdown on, on the people. Right. I think that it's interesting, the, the Peruvian situation is, a, is unique in a, in a sense that the Incan Empire was the most advanced civilization in the New World. And I mean, a, like, a lot, right? Because you have to remember that the New World had, you know, obviously indigenous people and everybody has the same rights, we're all human beings, right? But to be honest, there were some people that were hunter-gatherers, right, that lived lives that were generally peaceful and relaxed and they just ate and loved and sang and, and lived very beautiful lives and perhaps and perhaps communism in a way aims towards those more innocent and those more truly human moments right so in a way perhaps there's something 
very profound that we could have and perhaps still could learn from people in those in that condition. And and I mean that in the best way possible. But the Incan Empire, the Tawandinsuyu, was a modern state, but even by the standards of the Europeans. It didn't have a, a written system, perhaps the way that the Europeans did, but it had a kipu system by which records were kept with knots, right? They did everything from uh, research on the brain to research of the, the stars, to research in engineering, and they had a very practical religion. The Inca state religion, the religion of the uh, Viracocha and his son that comes down to earth to teach us how to live and then walks across the Pacific Ocean and so on, was the state religion. Most people, for example, um, who look towards indigeneity, uh, nine times out of 10 will look at the Pachamama cult Right, which is you know the Mother Earth, and the, there's the spirit in the wind, and if you follow the, when you die, you will follow the river, and you will you know go up to the skies and so on. That was already being phased out in the Tawantinsuyu by the time the Spanish got there. And it was uh, they had a state religion, a, a few, something of a think of antiquity, going towards feudalism, because at that when the time when the Spanish got I shouldn't even say the Spanish, when the pirates of the Catholic monarchy got to Tawantinsuyu, there was a civil war between the, the two children of the Inca, of the Incan emperor. And so you can already see that this huge empire, like many empires before it, was going to crumble down and eventually there will be small fiefdoms and principalities and perhaps other forms of monarchical rule or feudal rule. Uh, they had what they called the caciques, right? Which were developed after the Spanish came in, which was were indigenous landowners. And the cacique situation was erased by the Tupac Amaru led rebellion, right? Because Tupac Amaru was a cacique. He was a privileged indigenous person with a Spanish name and a Christian education, but who rose up against the colonizer. And in fact, a lot of Tupac Amaru paintings will have him with like a traditional garb, but then he'll have the hat, you know, with the belt buckle, kind of like a pilgrim of North America, right? And in fact, a lot of it, the symbology of Tupac Amaru is him with his, like, kind of like his long hair, right? Like this, but then with a hat, with the pilgrim hat on top. He reminds me of the guy from Quaker, the Quaker guy too, right? And so, <laughs> Yeah, and so this uh, situation makes makes it very different uh, culturally and also demographically in general when it comes to indigenous rights and indigenous culture in Peru. For one thing, Quechua is the most spoken indigenous language in the Western Hemisphere by a lot. Not only that, a lot of the groups that, for example, my ancestors are the Chanka people, not the Chanka, I wish, the, the Wanka people. The Wanka people, unfortunately, they work with the, with the pirates of the Catholic monarchy because they thought that these pirates would help them achieve true independence, right? And so these individuals, you know, they, they see themselves both as Peruvians and as part of their ancestry. So why Peruvian? People don't really understand the Peruvian national question or, or the meaning of being Peruvian. So 
Peruvian nationalism precedes Spanish nationalism by for a long, for a minute, right? There was a Republic of Peru before there was ever a Spanish state or a kingdom of Spain or a king of Spain or any of that. There was already a Peruvian Republic, the Republic of Peru. And Simón Bolívar put it best when he said that the Aborigines would now be called Peruvians, right? So to be Peruvian means to be indigenous, right? That is the meaning by, that the revolutionaries have fought for. But opposite to that meaning is the meaning of Simón Bolívar's betrayers and unfortunately successors, which were the oligarchies, right? Simón Bolívar was the second president of Peru. And then he was followed by a long line of terrible presidents. And then there was Velasco. And then there was Pedro Castillo. We've had three good presidents in Peruvian history. That's how, that's how crazy it is. But you know what? The U.S. can't can say much either, so it's fine. It's like Lincoln. That's it. That's it. And, and none of, none of our, our heroes believed in slavery, so there's that. You know? So... It, anyway, uh, I make all these points to note that, yes, is there a genocidal intent in the sense that the this strata, right, of oligarchs in Peru and of the upper middle class, in a way, wants to eliminate right, this indigenous peasant uprising and does see these people as inferior to them. But ultimately, they can't do much, right? It's almost like the Boer or Amabulu of South Africa that looks at the black masses, like they're overwhelmingly uh, the majority. And it's like, what if you can't kill everybody, then you don't have a working class, you don't have anything, right? And also they'll just kill you first. And so they, there is a genocidal intent, but it's not in the way that perhaps you could say a settler colony like the United States or Canada or Australia would have it, right? When the, when the genociders, and this isn't the best framing because I'm not a Jay Sakai settler type of guy. I'm really not. Um, let's just say this, that the race of the lords, as uh, as um, uh, Arguedas, Jose Maria Arguedas would have put it, the race of the lords is a majority in, in the U.S. and in Canada, and certainly not in Peru. Mm -hmm. I think that the indigenous groups, the one of the biggest claims that they have, and I think that is shared by all progressive and revolutionary Peruvians, is the plurinationality of Peru, right? To frame it in the same way as Bolivia is, right? As a plurinational state. The thing is, is that to be Peruvian is to be Aborigine, is to have multiple identities, right? Is to speak more than one language. And that is, uh, that is kind of sad, right? Because this upper strata tries to learn English, but it really can't because there's not that many English speakers. And so it's stuck with a uh, annoying, truly annoying accent, like richly menu accent, and perhaps a very shitty English, right? And I always, and they and they refuse to speak Quechua in, in Congress, right, in Parliament. I remember when Guido Bellido, he took out a bag of coca leaves and he started chewing them in the floor, in Congress, in the seat in Congress, and it became a big scandal, right? They don't like that. And, you know, I would tell people, I'm like, you know, if you look at footage from the Canadian Parliament, you have people speaking in French and you have other people replying in English, right? And nobody, there's no like, oh my God, you spoke another language, right? If you go to Montreal, 
right? People speak more than one language. So sometimes they speak Spanish, sometimes they speak uh, Urdu or Portuguese or German, you know, and it's just, it's a normal thing. I'm, uh, I speak English and Spanish and I'm learning, um, trying to learn, you know, inshallah, I'll learn it really quick, uh, Haitian Creole, because a lot of my students are Haitian and their parents don't speak, they don't speak English, right? So that's just a normal human thing to want to expand your horizons, your understanding, uh, to become more human, if you will. But to this strata of alienated people, it's, uh, it can happen. And so this strata acts in genocidal intent while knowing that their time is up. My dad, I think he put it best. He, uh, you know, my dad who's a Marxist Leninist, he's like, look, are they just gonna keep cooling people? Is that it? Because like, because you're never gonna have a, a white president, if you will, again. And by white, you know, obviously Fujimori is Japanese, but we mean by white here, by Limeño, by upper middle class, by upper class, by oligarchic class, right? We're not gonna have those anymore. We may have the Dina Boluartes, right? The, the rich indigenous, you know, comprador class, the Kulak class person, but we're not gonna have, quote unquote, a, a white oligarchic Peruvian leader anymore. I don't think so. It would have to be imposed by the fiercest of terrors. And I don't think that they have that in them because it, it leaked about a week ago that the Peruvian national police is running out of ammunition. So if you want, to help Peruvians beyond donating money, if there's a company, and people should research this, if there's a company by where you live in the United States that supplies the Peruvian government, you should protest if they decide to sell to the Peruvian government. You might even want to protest right now and say, hey, do not, you have sold in the past to the Peruvian state, don't do it, <laughs> do not do that. Well, they're, yeah. they're at a breaking point, yes? No, I just think that's a huge piece of news to leak out. I think that's, yeah. I, I mean, is is that widely known uh, in the protest? Yeah, it's on the news now and, uh, and everything. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, the Peruvian um, interior minister basically had to make the formal requests, right? For live ammunition, for rubber bullets, and of course, for everyone's favorite tear gas, tear gas. It should be noted that in Cuba, there has never been an instance in which tear gas was used against any protesters. So even the CIA-funded Cusanos have never faced what we faced in Miami during the George Floyd uprisings. It is a time of crisis, maybe, within the Peru Libre Party. So I was just yeah. wondering how, you know, what sort of discussions are happening within the party? Like, is there an effort to unpack what really happened with Castillo and see how the party can change moving forward. Um, you know, yeah, just like what what sort of discussions are happening within the party and what reactions are, are they planning to take uh, to, to this crisis? Is that they might choose, A, to discipline its Congress people that voted for the ouster. I mean, and that in a way will help rectify the feeling of some of the membership. Right? And I don't think it's a secret for me to say right, that there was a substantial level or portion of the membership that really did feel betrayed by these congressmen voting for the ouster. Mm -hmm. And I think that the party, and I think honestly, right, it's up to the upper bodies of the party to decide, then you know, the National Executive Committee, 
that there needs to be uh, some form of rectification process. Because if there's not, then you know, you're basically, this, good thing they won't get this reference, you're basically DSA, right? If you don't discipline your members, if people can vote for, you know, Zionist funding and Ukrainian funding, and like, you know, at that point, being a, a democratic socialist is what, you know? A NATO enthusiast or something. So, <laughs> you know, and so in my view, personally speaking for myself, I think that the party should rectify that. The party right now is fighting for this, um, you know, uh, the elections being moved closer to the present time. The argument is that logistically speaking, and it has already been proven in history, that you can get a Peruvian election going within four months, you know. And so they're like, look, four months, right? It's February, so by uh, June, we'll have an election. But again, this brings into the red territory or the red zone or the danger zone, the contract laws. Mm. Because as soon as a new Congress gets elected with a new president, they're gonna have a mandate. They just got elected. You know, that's the best moment for them to say, hey, uh, fuck you, Repsol, <laughs> goodbye, right? That's a, and a new president, you know, always has the ability to to energize, you know, the the people with his new rhetoric and his new uh, dimension, right? That's why Velasco did all of his greatest changes at the at the start, right? At the start, he was always talking about the army, our glorious tank divisions have surrounded Lima, and so on and so on. He had to talk like that because he couldn't wait five years to be like, oh, okay, guys, now I'm gonna do change. That that's not how it works. You know, AOC, AOC. And so, you know, you know me, I'm, I'm anti-social uh, democracy because, you know, Comrade Stalin put it best, social democracy is social fascism. Um, fascism, of course, uh, comrades uh, from the Sixth World Congress of the Common Term put it best, which is that social democracy is a desperate attempt by finance capital to save a decaying capitalism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's in Peru and also in the United States. Peru Libre, is facing the challenge, right, of having to deal with a mass of people, progressive and revolutionary, who have very little confidence in structures. Look, you go to one of those protests, you're gonna get like 30 uh, newsletters and pamphlets and newspapers, right? And they almost all sound the same. <laughs> That's the saddest shit. They almost all have the same demand, but yeah. when they sit down to talk, it's just like vicious. I mean, it's bad. Like I've seen people, man. And at first I was like, because I, I was like, hold on. Because at least in the American left, you know, there's like a semblance of politeness, but maybe that's just hypocrisy. I don't know. Maybe over there, they're on some like, bro, fuck your idea. Here's what, what the fuck I'm talking about, right? Maybe that's, maybe they're, you know what? They give me a lot of, and I'm talking about peasants, right? I'm talking about like indigenous Ketra speaking people. And I say this in a good way. They give me Jimmy Dore energy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like, very like, God, God. <laughs> and some Peruvians, again, Quechua speaking minors, they're low-key on some like, ah, uh, like, how, I don't want to, this is a bad comparison, guys. Cancel me. But you have to have this movement that has all sorts of characters mm -hmm. because the people make the revolution. There's also grandmas, right? There's also people who are shy. There's also people who are, um religious right and look and here's the uncomfortable part 
without all those components, without all those aspects, it's not really a people's movement. And I see that a lot. Um, and I've seen it recently, right? But I've seen it throughout my life that you have a, a group of well-meaning communists that they've read the books, right? They've read the theory, right? And they're like, yo, we're going to unionize. Mm-hmm. Wait, or wait, what do you mean? You're going to unionize where you work at? No, no, no. We're going to go to somebody else's workplace and get them to unionize. Oh, interesting. You're going to do that. And, you know, like, I have to be humble. You know, I don't like to be like, you're wrong, you know? But, the, uh, you know, you will know a tree by its fruits, right? As Jesus Christ put it. And you'll see, bro, people spend, tw- not, well, I won't say 20. They spend five, 10 years, you know, in this shit. And do they get the results that they wanted? They don't, right? Because they were based on what? Oh, I read the books. Yeah, I'm glad that you're, you, got, you read books. I read books. I'm out here reading hella books, right? But can you be able to not only meet people where they're at, but stay there for a little bit? Can you see where they're right? I always tell the comrades, the people are essentially correct, right? We might look at, at an idea like, man, this shit is backwards. But what, obviously the negative aspect of that contradiction, right? Because everything's a unity of contradictions. Obviously that aspect, that negative aspect is the dominant aspect. But how do we make the positive revolutionary aspect the dominant aspect, right? What it, that's the work of a Bolshevik theoretician, right? That's actual like theoretical work. It's not just, oh, I read Marx and I regurgitate Marx and I am a Marxist. No, no, it's looking at the phenomena from the viewpoint of this person that you think is wrong. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, We've, uh, we have to look at it that way or else we'll be alienated. Look, people, for example, that march in these marches, a lot of them, they're ethno-nationalists, right? And a lot of times, you know, people will say, oh, you know, the nationalism of the oppressed, that's revolutionary. And, you know, I agree, right? I could even call myself a Peruvian nationalist. I think that's fair. That's not to say that you take a right opportunist, you know, approach and say, okay, guys, it doesn't matter. No, like you obviously have to oppose uh, those concepts, but those concepts are real. National socialism in Peru is a real thing, right? Antauro Mala, he, this guy, he went to jail in 2005 because he rose up against the uh, Alejandro Toledo government. He was recently released like about three months ago, right? And he was touring Peru. He had done a coup attempt. Uh, he was a member of the military. He was beloved. He was an ethno-nationalist. He had his own ideology, right? Ethno-nationalism puts Peruvian people, you know, the Inca descendants at the top. And so Antauro Mala was surging in the polls. He was going throughout Peru, doing rallies. And then Castillo got coup. Now, this is important to note. If Castillo had renounced or there had been a call for new presidential elections, the right wing was literally, literally peeing their pants because they're like, yo, this guy, he's going to run and he's going to win. So in a way, he helped, you know, prevent the further push towards a a whole impeachment. But once the coup occurred, the guy said, oh, you know, we're still preparing for our march that will take place in March of 2023. And everybody was like, what do you march? 
bro, it's December. What? Yo, there's going to be like five new presidents by the time you do your little march. <laughs> and so he was like, he didn't know what to do. He came to Lima. He went to La Plaza San Martin. La Plaza San Martin is like the, the town square of Lima. It's where you have political demonstrations, you have polemics, debates. Uh, it's a place of culture. You have like rap battles, political rap battles. It's, it's very beautiful. And so Castillo would speak from like a balcony, right? Like a private balcony. And he would give speeches from there during the campaign. And so he got a balcony too. He came out to the balcony and he said, I want to direct my message to President Dina Boluarte. Bro, he committed a sin because nobody was calling her President Dina Boluarte. And when he said that, they started booing him. They started throwing garbage at the men, bottles, like glass bottles, eggshells, his own tomatoes. His own staff was like, sir, we got to get out of here. We got to get out. Right? And he literally delegitimized himself to a substantial chunk of the population just because he wouldn't back Castillo, right? He was like, oh, Castillo was corrupt. And people were like, look, he might be corrupt, right? Okay. But he wasn't arrested for being corrupt. Mm. Yo, Fujimoristas are the definition of corrupt. I don't know what the fuck you're on. And so now he's like, well, you know, like, he's kind of like in the air, right? There is really nobody that can replace Castillo for leadership. And that's also why he's still in jail. He was supposed to be in jail only for seven days. He had uh, his hearing through Zoom. And uh, during his hearing, where it was supposed to be confirmed that he was going to be released the day after, he said, I invite all my supporters to come to the prison tomorrow at 2 p.m. And we're going to march. And, uh, yo, and the judge interrupted him, and guess what? They gave him 18 months. Because they knew, they knew that Castillo, he could walk out of jail, he could walk straight to the presidential palace. Like he walked straight to it, you know? But in the end, uh, they're holding him because he is a unifying factor. There's only one more person that could unify the left, like Pedro Castillo does, and he's not allowed to set foot on Peruvian soil. You guys already know who I'm talking about. Evo Morales, who has a unifying effect on the left, coming down, crossing the border from Bolivia. People behave themselves around Evo Morales. So Evo Morales is a threat to the oligarchy of Peru, right? Because while it's good to be principled and to delineate differences, and while it's good to... to have red lines, right? To have defined lines and a political line, all those things are clear. I remember that uh, a veteran of Playa Giron told me, he told me, right? I'm, and I'm telling you what he told me. You know what Fidel taught me? Fidel taught me to add and don't subtract. Mm. Fidel taught me to multiply and not divide. And it's very simple, but it's true. Right now, we really need all the unity of the and people, and this is the hardest shit to, to, to get your head around. People who have the same right, perhaps even more of a right, to a better world than you do. No, but idiot, I've read the books. Okay, but you know that lady, she gave birth to four people and she works to feed those four people. I think she's got more of a right 
of a new world than you do, bro. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because you thought you ran, therefore you're going to lead or something. Uh, no. You might lead here and there. But who should really lead is the person who knows how to lead, who has to, who has no option but to lead, right? There's comrades out there, you know, and I don't want to divert this too much. There's comrades out there who can afford to say, fuck this shit and forget communism. Yeah. And that's and I love it that they've read the books and I hope they read some more too. But I also want the person who has no choice. My dad told me, he said, look, you go on the internet, you see some of these people who are like, oh, you know, I almost became a Nazi, but then I became a communist. He's like, look, he asked, he told me, he looked at me, he looked at my, at my Indian face and he said, do you have the option to become a Nazi? I'm like, no, not really. I couldn't become a Nazi if I wanted to. Exactly. Right, exactly. You don't have the option to be like, oh, I could be a Nazi or a communist. No. Same thing economically, you know? Well, yeah, I, I was just going to mention, I think that especially, um, you know, with the struggles that have been here in the United States, and it seems like also in Peru, a lot of it revolves around like, like spontaneity in action. It's not necessarily, you know, something that's like the, the people's uprisings are not necessarily centered around like some sort of vanguard party. Like it, it's very spontaneous. And so I think what, what you're describing, um, you know, the many faces that you will see like at these um, protests and these people's struggles, I think, you know, that's what you get from uh, like spontaneous mobilizations of the working class. And I think that's why it's important to take those moments of spontaneity and try to build uh you know some sort of like centralized conscious movement uh within right. within that because that's how you can help people work on backwards ideas and, like push forward um conscious and like revolutionary and revolutionary line within the struggle so maybe if if we see within these spontaneous movements like you know lots of backwardness and lots of misunderstanding that's just an opportunity and a testament to uh, you know, how important, like, putting forward uh, a revolutionary line and, like, joining um, a party and, like, committing oneself to a party. Um, I think it just shows the importance of that. I think so. Look, I will say this. The National Political Party, Peru Libre, existed for, has existed for now 14 years, yeah. right? But it, got, it became national in 2021. So that's been like two years ago. So 12 years or yeah, 11 years of its existence. It was a local organization. It started as called, it was called Peru Libertario, Libertarian Peru. The word libertarian has a different connotation in Peru. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways, I want to underscore the, the fact of localized struggle towards national struggle. So, for example, do I think, you know, we should have a communist party, national communist party that leads the working class? Or, you know, of course, right? I have a Marxist-Leninist. Yes, of course. The Leninist party, beautiful. Mwah, beautiful. Okay. But what comes before that? Yeah. Right? Because there's been hella communist parties in Peru, right? The Peruvian and communist movement broke after the Sino-Soviet split, right? Uh, that's also something that's different between Peru and other countries, uh, but it's similar to Bolivia, that Peru never had a socialist party, right? It didn't, like, if you look at Argentina, if you look at Chile, um, 
I think Uruguay as well, you have kind of like that repetition of, of, uh, of Russia and Germany, right? That you have a socialist party that has a left wing that splits from the socialist party to then fund the communist party. That never happened in Peru. It was just like, bah, the social, the communist party. The end. And it was a monolithic thing until the Sino-Soviet split. Um, but yeah, so I think that for America, look, I am a person who looks at communism as a very practical and immediate thing, you know? And I love how in Peru, people are very proud of their region, of their town. If you go to Cuba, people define themselves by their neighborhood. They define themselves on those very localized terms. They know the history of their neighborhood, right? If you ever visit Cuba, and if you don't, if you haven't, I want to encourage people to go to Cuba. Even if it's as a tourist, they really appreciate tourists. They'll treat you well. It's very safe. It's very cheap. And you learn a lot. And it's very beautiful in every way. So if you look at, you know, again, Cuba and also Peru, perhaps to a lesser extent, people know their history. They appreciate their history. The, even the, Peru, the Cuban uh, military doctrine, right, is to train everybody to protect their patch of land so that in case the imperialists uh, invade, they can withstand an invasion for about, what is it, three days, something like that. So when I look at communism in, in, in the United States, I have to look at Florida, and then I have to look at South Florida. And I have to look at our history, right? We have a social investigation committee here, and we've learned about the pirates of Florida. We've learned about Black Caesar, about the Seminole Wars. We've learned about our ancient history. We have a mount. Uh, about 30 minutes from where I live. It was made 10,000 years ago. Uh, it was uh, from the civilizations of the mound builders. The mound builders were themselves a class that was overthrown 200 years before the, the Europeans arrived. There was like a, a class struggle among the Cherokees. So I mentioned all these things because I, I think that to take leadership of something is to take responsibility for something. And I see myself as responsible for my county. And that's my, if I fail here, bro, I failed the place that saw me grow. The place that saw me uh, fall in love and buy my first car and get into my first car accident <laughs> and, and, and break up and all that, right? And all the beautiful things, all my, where I rode my bike, where I went to school, right? That's what I feel. That's profound, right? If you fail that place, damn, bro. And so because of that, and because of the fact that South Florida is, to be honest, the graveyard of all national political parties, right? Even though I'm in the National Political Party Peru Libre, I recognize that in the United States, it's the graveyard of the national political parties, of the communist parties to be exact, um, at least for Florida, my view, is to develop mass organizations that have a communist leadership, but that whose ultimate goal is to serve the people. And this is now where, again, I have to be vague, right? So as to not be factionalist, but there are some communist parties that establish front groups to recruit. The whole point of the front group is to recruit. Oh, you're against racism? Okay, come to my Black Lives Matter front group. Oh, you support a woman's right to have an abortion? Okay, come to my uh, don't ban abortion front group. Right? Oh, you, you support Pal Palestine? Okay, come to my anti-imperialist front group, right? And are we actually gonna do shit for you? <laughs> no, but 
eventually you'll join our party, right? And if you don't, then you're going to leave the end. Whereas in my view, we need mass organizations that win. And because they won, then people should care about you. Not because you have the right idea that you've read in a book, but rather because you know how to win. Because then people who deserve a better world, who deserve a communist world, can then follow you, can then build with you, can then lead others, right? So, you know, that's where I'm at. I'm not against a political party. Again, my dream is a communist party to lead the revolution and, and all that. But I think my immediate practical ends is Broward County. Just like the comrade in Apurimac, his land is his mountain, you know, and he's going to rep that shit at all times. I'm repping 954 all day. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, this has been a great conversation, really educational. We wanted to just end by asking you a couple things for people who are watching and want to learn more or want to continue. Yeah. The one thing is always like things people should read or things people should study to develop their consciousness about this subject. And the second is always which groups, which organizations, ways people can get involved, ways people can help. Sure. Well, the first thing that you should read, especially if you're a Marxist Leninist, one of the, the members right, of the Communist International and the leading Marxist in Peru, which is Jose Carlos Mariategui, and this uh, seven essays, interpretative essays of the Peruvian reality, they're found in, it's found in English as well, right? And then when it comes to helping people out, as I, as I one had mentioned before, we're you know going to have an action in Miami in a few weeks where we'll send you guys the details and we'll launch a fundraiser. But in the meantime, Pumas Collective is doing a fundraiser. Just type in Pumas Collective on Instagram and donate whatever you can because in Peru, $1 goes a long way. The money goes towards helping people from the jungle, from the Andes, get to Lima, to feed them and to house them. During the elections for Pedro Castillo, these folks had to live or basically in the streets. They had to sleep in the sidewalk. Now there's some institutions, some unions that are providing lodging, but they need blankets, they need pillows, they need soap, they need toothbrushes, they need towels, they need eggs and flour. And all those things are very cheap in Peru. So if you got $5, if you got $1, throw it in because guess what? You're part of the revolution we do that. It's unrelated, but we need to have it done. Recall that every month in Miami, the last Sunday of every month, we have a caravan against the embargo on Cuba. If you're in South Florida, we got to show out. Guess, guess what? That helps too. Cuba is the first trench of socialism in Latin America, the first true territory. Whenever I go there, my eyes tear up because I'm like, damn, we did this shit. The anti-colonial fighters did this, right? It's not perfect, but it's closer than anything we see in this half of the world. So I want to promote that. Go to Troika Collective. We're always shouting the details for where we're going to take out of. But usually we start at 10 a.m. and we're done by. They're incredible. And I would encourage anybody in the area to go and support that as well. Thank you so much, comrade. It's a pleasure to speak with you and take care. Solidarity. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.